Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. But you understand if you're building for the Olympics, you're interested in building for the Olympics. Not many people are interested in what happens afterwards. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Alison Brown. Alison, hello. How are you today? I am great. How are you doing? I am fantastic because we have opened the doorway to another maze of amazing mysteries around Olympics. We had no idea what was going to happen when we opened the door to the pool. Right. And... <laughs> and... So I was reading Twitter and I came across a tweet from USA Swimming that said, oh, uh, the the w one of the pools from Rio just got finished. They just finished moving it. And I said, wait, what? They moved a swimming pool? <laughs> and how sure does enough, one do that? How does one do that? And sure enough, they moved some swimming pools. And, and it turns out that a lot of the swimming pools from Rio are being moved to other locations within Brazil as part of the legacy efforts. So we wanted to know more about that and track down Trevor Tiffany, who is the chairman of Mirtha Pools USA. He's in charge of Mirtha's special event facilities like the Olympics. And Mirtha has provided various pools for different Olympics, starting with the water polo pool for Atlanta 1996. Their first complete contract was for London 2012, and then again, they had the complete contract for Rio 2016, which had a lot of these temporary swimming pools. So we talked to Trevor about these facilities, how they work, and what happens to them after the Olympics. Take a listen. So just first off, explain, like, the project for Rio was incredibly massive. What? Yes, for yeah, us just, it was. A good project. What was it? Eight pools and... But, it, but there were a lot more pools in the, the materials you sent us. So did the Olympics project include other facilities outside of Rio? Yes. So in all, the, I think it was 16 or 18 pools, um, all associated with the contract for Rio. 
some were re sort of refitting pools that were, you know, out of commission sort of thing. So we, we built a pool inside the pool type of thing. And then um, they did two or three satellite projects, which were supposed to be training centers for their people or other teams coming to Rio. So, you know, we had uh, facilities all over Brazil. And in fact, what's happening now with the pools that were in Brazil that have been refit, uh, there are two now going on now being rebuilt uh, elsewhere in, in Brazil. What exactly is a temporary pool versus a permanent pool? Well, for us, it means the, the construction of the pool is exactly the same. It's the finishing works that are different. So um, if there were tiles in the permanent pool, we don't put the tiles on the, on the structure. Uh, we normally line the structure inside. Any part that water will touch, we line it with a membrane that can be taken away after the event. And then the client who's purchasing the permanent pool, because these are all permanent pools, will then get um, you know a, a brand new pool without with all the protective wrapping on and so on. So it's, uh, but for us, a temporary pool is exactly the same as a permanent. However, the temporary pools are normally built above ground, and then they normally put uh, a scaffolding structure around for the decking and so on. That's what normally happens. In Rio, they built the pools in ground. So they dug a hole first, uh, made a, a section uh, that we could build inside. So for the main competition pool and warm-up pool, we were building inside a concrete shell. Okay, so uh, that, that, that concrete shell is what is in those pictures floating around. Exactly. Okay. That's that's the concrete shell we built inside. Yes. So there was, it was never a pool as such that. It was just a concrete shell. So then what was the advantage for them if they were putting it in ground of using a temporary versus a permanent? The advantage was that they could use the temporary structure again, which they are doing, with pools all over the country. So the biggest problem when you're hosting a major event is you need, eh, depends whether it's World Championships or an Olympics, but you need minimum of seven pools, let's say, for an Olympics, 12 for a World Championship, right? And nobody wants 12 pools in the same place or even in the same city because they're all Olympic-sized pools. So the advantage of using a system which is a temporary pool that you can then take apart and use somewhere else, is they can use them as legacy. So in London, we built seven pools for London. And since the games in London, we've built seven pools using the London materials all over Great Britain. And that's just what we're doing in Rio now. Okay, so now the pools are getting moved from the Olympic Park to other facilities, but the buildings and the structures around your pools are obviously staying in Rio. Well, the wound in Rio is a temporary structure. So from the beginning, it was built as a temporary structure, only to be used for the Olympics, hopefully to be sold on to somebody else who either wanted to use it temporary or permanently, but the structure was always considered a temporary structure. 
All right. And those, I mean, they do cost money to take, put up and take down, but it's overall less than a permanent structure and having to maintain that permanent structure permanently. Absolutely. This is the biggest problem. So the biggest problem is maintaining a permanent structure of that sort of, um, that sort of magnitude, which is why I mentioned, I think I mentioned in the email, London. Mm -hmm. Right. London is a classic example where you're building for the Olympics some magnificent structure that you have to maintain for the rest of its lifetime, and it's not built as something that's economical to run, economical to maintain, operate, everything. You know, it's an architect's dream, so it's a nightmare. And, and <laughs> because and really aren't they designed to kind of be well they're designed to look pretty and then they're designed to be built kind of quickly because they don't really have a lot of time to build all these structures that seemed to be a challenge in rio with the temporaries absolutely for certain with the permanent normally there's a lot more uh leeway and a lot they're built a lot further ahead you know what we're trying to explain where is it uh, t tokyo so we're we're just we've been negotiating and talking on Tokyo, and we were meeting the people who were the organizers for Tokyo maybe four months ago, five months ago, although we've been talking for the last three four years, and they were saying, oh, you know, there's still plenty of time, right? Two years, something. We said, understand that for London, we were already on site building temporary facilities. You guys haven't even gone out to bid. You haven't got designs. You haven't got anything. You just know, oh, we need this. But they aren't thinking about it as of a little while ago. And it's still not, it's still not confirmed, right? So this is crazy. Two years out, they still don't know where the building's going to go, who's doing it, what it is. You know, it's like, you guys, you're dreaming in Technicolor. I mean, we can help, but yeah, Jill, Jill and I will just pick our chins up right, off the floor, right? Because oh, I had stunned. right. I had read somewhere else that uh, I think World Sailing is not happy with Tokyo either. They said they were behind in building the sailing facilities. So hearing this is also like, oh, this is going to be a rough Olympics because because also it seemed like things for Rio started late as well. So what are what are some of the challenges that that makes for you? Well, it's Japan. So, I mean, the main facility is well underway. It'll be okay. It'll be on time and everything. But I'm talking about the extra facilities that they need, you know, while they're still arguing where the road goes, where the pathways go and so on, and exactly what structure they're going to build and who's going to build it. Now, all of these things, they go to our advantage because this is what we do, you know, on a, on a regular basis. But the stupidity sometimes is that it would go, like most things, to low bid. Oh, right. right? <laughs> so then you can imagine what might happen, uh, you know, in the last basis. Hence the green pool in, uh, in uh, Rio. Oh, we didn't have money to do that. It's the Olympics. What do you mean you didn't have money to put a proper filtration system, a proper so-and-so, right? Absolutely crazy. Now, would... A swimmer have any notion as to permanent versus temporary? Would there be any difference in, in usage? No, none whatsoever. No, they uh, no, they look exactly the same, and um, they feel pretty much exactly the same. The I mean, of course, they know the different 
between a concrete and tile pool because but normally a swimmer let's be honest on the on the upper end who are training for world championships or olympics they're always turning on touch pads that right. are provided Omega, the international, so they never they never actually touch the walls or anything like that. So they don't they don't know. But I mean, we have so many uh, regular pools that they know our pools very well. And what makes your pools different? Well, because I'll back this up. I've swam in some Olympic pools, and I've swam at the YMCA, and there is a vast quality difference in the type of water and how it feels and how fast you feel in in a in a better pool what yeah. what makes it what makes a good pool good yeah uh, good swimmers usually is my answer <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're very fortunate we, we built pools I, I think Trevor just insulted your swimming too. <laughs> <laughs> no I was faster in Munich I can tell you that <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, they uh, we're lucky that we have really good swimmers in our pools, but we're also lucky in that um, you know they do swim fast in our pools. Uh, I use an example um, which is Athens Olympics. You know they renovated a pool which was two meters deep on site in Athens, made it three meters deep because everyone says that deeper water is faster. And uh, they had two individual world records in Athens. We had six in the trials for the U.S. team in Long Beach in the temporary pool. Wow. Right? So, um, and the, their swimmers were swimming in Athens as well, so they should have actually swum faster, but they didn't. But, no, it's, it's really difficult. I mean, we try to do everything to make our pools the fastest pools around so every little neon so that we try and change but you know really it still depends on the swimmers it depends also on the water of course always being level in the pool good land ropes i guess um but and then the quality of the water as you say is very important but we've little effect unless we're on the temporary pools we insist on doing the water as well because for us, this is really important for the uh, uh, FINA, the world body. It's incredibly important because it's 3D, high-definition de high television now. So you can't have murky water. You can't have uh, poor water. Right, right. Yeah, they, they still want us to build that, you know, within six days and provide them perfect water at the same time. They're crazy. Well, so... So what does providing the water mean? Uh, means providing the mechanical filtration system that get, makes your water clean. So uh, it's, uh, I mean, there are so many stories, but the point is the quality of water coming from the mains on a temporary venue can be vastly different wherever you are. So you, you have to have time to circulate that water at least uh, four or six times in order for the filters to take out the vast impurities and for the chemical system to uh, clean the water out and make it uh, make the clarity really good. And the clarity and the, and the feel of the water then changes completely. So once the water is really clean and crystal, then the swimmers can feel the water a lot better than when it's murky and uh, very important, but one of these small things.
Not a small thing to the swimmers, though. It's not a small thing to the swimmers at all. So in back to temporary structures, we're in 2018, and things are getting finishing moving. So what, it, a year and a half or so after the Olympics, how long does it take to dismantle and put them in their proper homes? Uh, it takes no time at all to dismantle. So, you know, if it takes us, let's say, three weeks to build from start to finish, one week to dismantle from start to finish, something like that. Those are on temporary venues, right? Permanent venues are always limited by the ability of the general contractor to do their works and have things ready and so on. So pools can vary from six weeks to six months and even longer to be built. But in reality, they take three or four weeks to build our pools. What was the second part of that question? In in the 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 moving because some of them just got yeah. it reinstalled. Yeah, on the moving, it really depends. What we like to do is work with the people who are hosting the competition up front and try and help them find new clients and and so on. But you understand if you're building for the Olympics, you're interested in building for the Olympics. Not many people are interested in what happens afterwards. Uh, so you have to you have to try and help them through that. Uh, so, for instance, in Tokyo, uh, we are hosting or we are part of the World Championships in Fukuoka in Japan two years later or a year later, I'm trying to think. So part of their facilities can be used later in Fukuoka. But trying to get those two people, those two organizing committees talking together because we're a third party with no connections really, except through the governing body to either, is really difficult. So you get stupidities like, um, you know, they will use the pool in Tokyo, but they'll only want to have it on a temporary basis. So they don't want to buy it. This is for, uh, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you'll go, well, you'd be much better off finding an owner for the pool later because the cost difference is very little and then letting them have the pool or giving it away as a legacy. No, no, we don't want anything to do with that. We just want you to come in, build the pool, and take it away. So you go, okay, that's what you want. So you give them a price for that. You go looking for a local facility or a local municipality who need a pool. You say, have we got a deal for you? And you sell the pool on again, and we've done this two or three times, to the next people who are... 50 kilometers away, and you've sold the pool twice. So it's wonderful business for us, but stupid on the in the terms of the host of the championship. So we try and point this out. You know, we're not we're not. Uh, how do we say it? We maybe are idiots, but you know, we try and point it out to the organizers. This is the way to do it. Everybody wins, right? If you're not going to do that, what happens is we'll come in and we'll do this, and we'll sell it twice. But some people just say, well, go ahead. We don't care. Wow. So they're losing out on an opportunity to make money or get something back from their initial investment. Nobody makes real money on this situation. Okay. But they save, someone else saves money if they give it as legacy to the next people, which is what they did in the UK and what they're doing in Rio. Yeah. But it's not everyone takes that advantage. So where are the pools from... Rio ending up. I know one is a military training pool. 
It's a military training pool. There's one going in Salvador starting in two weeks, and there's one already uh, going in that I didn't know the name of that I was told. I could send the information to you, but okay. but these are, these are municipalities or or military installations that the government are giving them to. Which is fascinating because I think a lot of people don't understand how many pools the Olympics actually needs. You need the training pools and pools in the Olympic Village and 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 the competition pools, right? Exactly. And the the part of the problem is you know, as I said, the initial part, they, they don't want these pools. So, you know, imagine Paris is now going to do the next Olympics after after Tokyo. And Paris, you know, they want a major competition center, but they've already got lots of 50-meter pools in Paris. So, you know, they, they say, well, why can't we use these pools? Well, the problem is most municipal pools are shallow to deep. Mm -hmm. So for competition they're not considered suitable. They can't host water polo training and things like this, synchronized swimming training. And also, you have to bus people all over the city when you have this situation. And this is a, another nightmare if you're hosting a major competition, finding transport to transport people all over the city. So London did it best. They put five pools in a row under a tent in the village, and this basically was all the training venues they needed for every sport. And uh, Paris are, are probably doing a similar thing, but trying to do it with three pools instead of five. Um, and so, you know, this that's the most sensible way to deal with it. And then afterwards, those pools can go anywhere in France. And they're building pools all the time. Everyone is building pools all the time. So it's not a... It's not a, an inconvenience if, if you're uh, thinking on a national basis as opposed to just a local basis. Do you think we'll ever go back to outdoor pools for Olympic competition? It's a very good question. Very good question. Um, the proposal from uh, Los Angeles is an outdoor pool. And uh, my discussions with Los Angeles, do you really think this will work? And they go, it never rains in Los Angeles. And <laughs> climate is changing all over the world. Are you really sure? Uh, but that's that's their intention. But, you know, they just did the uh, Commonwealth Games in uh, Brisbane, outdoor pool. But, of course, that wasn't a good example because it poured it down on three or four sessions. And the media, of course, didn't like it, sitting in, in front of electronics and so on with the rain pouring down. Uh, it's not an ideal situation. So I think we may be, maybe down the road we'll have a combination of the two because the roof is the most expensive part of the whole uh, building structure. And I, I like the outdoor. It feels like you should yeah. be swimming outdoors. Swimmers like the outdoor as well. The only people that don't like the outdoor are the, are the um, organizers or rather the FINA for, you know, um, how do we put it, uh, ideal situation for, for the media. Because it's all about, you know, the reporting and the media, talking about the event rather than the weather. Right. Oh, well, Trevor, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. I think our minds are blown a little bit. I, <laughs> I've been more dumbfounded than that. But this has been so helpful to us. So Martha has done the pools for... 
Rio and London, maybe Tokyo, because that's the negotiations. Yeah. Well, there's there's a definition between them the pools, right? So okay. we started Los Angeles, but we built the water pool, a polar pool in Los Angeles, and that was a temporary pool, and now it's in a permanent location in Florida, from immediately after Los Angeles. We're in uh, Florida. We're in Florida. Yeah, not Los Angeles. Atlanta. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. So 1996. Yeah. And then that one's in um, Lake Highland Prep, okay. which is in Orlando, Florida, high school, okay. private high school in Orlando, Florida. Uh, so that was 96. What's the next one? Um, 2000. Sydney. Uh, Sydney. Sydney. In Sydney, we didn't do anything. Uh, 2004, then, Athens. Athens. Do anything there. So the next one is 2008. Where's that one? Beijing. Beijing, we did the water polo pool in Beijing. We renovated an existing 50-meter pool, um, uh, which was the water polo venue. We put a new pool inside an old pool. So pretty much like we did in, in uh, Rio, but using another system, renovation system. Uh, then the next one? Beijing. 12 was London. Is London. So London was the biggie. Um, and then uh, Rio's followed on from London. Uh, Tokyo hopefully is followed on from Rio. Paris will hopefully follow on from that. <laughs> and so, I've already been eating with Los Angeles. And uh, that, that will be a biggie for us again. And one quick question because that popped in my head. What's more ideal, renovating an existing pool or building either a new or temporary structure newer 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 structures the easiest easiest way for both ways to go but the thing about renovating old buildings and old structures is that uh, really you don't have to do any major renovations so you don't have to break down walls to bring in machinery to do anything of that you can build inside an old structure very simply. So any other method of building a new pool inside an old pool, as opposed to changing the tiles or changing things like that, but actually building a new pool inside an old building is practically uh, impossible. Well, not impossible, very expensive. But for us, we build a new shell inside the old shell, still use the existing structure and everything. And so that's in that sense, far more economical to do. But it really depends on the condition of the building that you have. So whether that's being kept in good condition. And if the building's in good condition, normally the pool's in good condition as well. So it really depends. Oh my gosh, that was fascinating. <laughs> and I'm like, it's like the bath fitters of pools. Right? It's like they come in and they put it... Right. I was totally. And Tokyo's like, oh, you must just have a warehouse full of pools. We'll take number 12. Thanks. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Like, they put the pool, but it's covered. They keep it covered in plastic. It's like grandma covering the couch in plastic so she could resell it. But I'm totally confused. I'm like, you, you build the building, but then you take. Like, I would think it would make much more sense to have a temporary outdoor structure with the temporary scaffolding and the temporary pool 
Right. Because wouldn't that be much more, it'd be a lot cheaper and then you could resell or pass it on like he was talking about and use those facilities all over the place. Right. Well, what gets me, what also gets me is the idea of we don't want to deal with selling the pool afterwards. We just want to, what? You could get a little bit of money back or save a little, you know what I mean? Right. I couldn't believe that. I know. And Tokyo. Dude, what are you thinking? Wow. I know. But I also thought it was funny when he was like, oh, it's the Japanese. They'll figure it out. (laughs) It'll all get done on time. (laughs) But still, like, you got to worry. Because if they're not, they're that far behind with swimming and with sailing and, and how many other structures. I mean, you're talking about a lot of sports. And you probably have a lot of associations angry with you. Right. And that's a lot to do. Because they all want to have, just like we were talking about the test events in Pyeongchang, Mm -hmm. they all want to have their test events. Right. And see the different structures and see the different... I mean, yeah, a a test event probably doesn't matter as much for swimming or track and field. Right, because a a track is a track. A track is a track. And yeah, it's going to feel different, but the athletes are used to competing in all different... Right, types of... circumstances and weather and that sort of thing but still but yeah you're talking about a course or right yeah just knowing that your structure is going to get built I think having that surety is probably huge yeah I mean what happens when they don't have we had a situation where things just were not done Rio was pretty close Rio was pretty close. And I know Athens was pretty close. Right. I mean, the one thing that I remember was in 72, the athletes talking about they were living in incomplete buildings. In Munich? In Munich. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, some of the um, the athletes' villages. Oh, weren't done. Yes. I, I, I remember hearing the stories that the athletes villages truly weren't completed and they were living. Well, I guess Sochi was like that, too. Right. Because those weren't completed. Those weren't completed. But I don't think we've heard any stories about facilities for the competitions not being completed. Right. Yeah. But, and I remember in Rio, there were just like like the finishing touches in a lot of places weren't done. Right. The the fancy uh, signage or whatever. But that's more the attendees' experience versus right versus the athletes. Right. So yeah, as we talk to the summer athletes, we'll have to ask them, since Rio was so dicey in a lot of pieces. Yeah. What? How dicey was it? How dicey was it really? Oh, that's so fascinating. And I, I, you know, once he said it, it made total sense because so many regular swimming pools are shallow, are different depths and that totally changes how the water functions and the waves you have to work through so maybe that's also why the ymca is not as good a pool as say the munich pool the munich pool is just beautiful really sydney's pretty good but i'm not much of a swimmer i mean like i can swim Mm -hmm. but i don't swim laps right right so i've never i've also never been in a competitive pool so maybe i would feel the difference yeah i would probably drown (laughs) 
I can't touch the bottom. It doesn't take much for me not to be able to touch the bottom. So, yeah, because he's like, oh, it was kind of shallow. It was only two meters. And I'm thinking to myself, I'd still drown. <laughs> That's still way over my head. How fascinating. Who I know. Knew? Who knew? Oh, no. And that the water feels different. And he's like, oh, we provide the water. And I'm like, you mean you just don't turn on the tap and throw some chlorine in? No, they have a whole circulation filtration. And it's a big deal. I know. I, I never thought of how the water felt. Why, why is it that every time we do an interview, that just opens up a whole another <laughs> door to a room that we didn't know existed? I know. I feel like... Our Olympic experience has been like, we're still in our first year at Hogwarts. Oh, right. <laughs> and the staircases keep moving and we don't know where the room of requirement is. And we keep getting lost on the way to the dining hall. And the ghosts aren't talking to us. And, you know, yep. maybe by year seven, we'll know how to ride the staircase of the, of the Olympic story. But yeah, it's just amazing how many stories we keep discovering. And I guess it's, it's so surprising because we both have been watching the Olympics for a long time. Right. And we're big fans. And we're big fans and we watch a lot. And yet there's so much coverage that never happens. Right. Which is why we exist. You can learn about temporary pools. I'm still a little freaked out about this temporary pool thing. Right. Well, well, and also the idea of here, we can pop in a pool. It can be used for the world's best competition, but then you get to take off like the protective covering, you know, you move the pool and then take off the little like plastic strip that protects everything. And voila, you have a permanent pool. Like what? And Matt, how do you think they move it? I mean, I know it's in pieces, but still, right. imagine seeing that flatbed truck. Yeah, oh my the God, oversized the Olympic load. pool. Yeah, right. Who knew? Gosh, I wonder if you... they. I'd want to plaster yeah, like when like they were... the rings everywhere on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, now we have to look. What is on the bottom of the pool? Like you know how they put the logo on the track right. or the right? They put the logo on the pool, and is that like a temporary iron-on patch? that can be peeled off at the end of the event. Yeah, but even if, you know, I'm thinking, no, that that doesn't exist because I bet it's stainless. But still, wouldn't you want it there just so everybody can go, hey, here's our Rio 2016 legacy pool. Yeah. And just the the number, the sheer number of pools that were kind of added on to that Rio project when they talk about the budget and how it ballooned, it's like, oh, yeah, but they're throwing in all of these other things. Right. Like, what is the true, what is the true cost of hosting the events versus, oh, wait, you need to build a road or, oh, since we need to have one practice pool, it's cheaper to buy pools in bulk. So let's buy three. Buy four, get one free. <laughs> Well, you know, you need seven pools. So if you buy six, we'll give you one at 67% off. It seems like what's the true cost versus 
we're going to do all these other things around hosting the Olympics that we wanted to get done anyway, and this is our excuse, which right. is a little bit of what Los Angeles was doing for its bid. Right. And I think a lot of cities do build that in. I think Boston was talking about that when they were talking about the bid. There's much needed transportation infrastructure and things like that that would get you know there would be an impetus to get it done right and i know london developed a whole urban renewal project within right the olympic envelope and i don't i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because on the one hand it makes it feel so much more expensive to host the olympics because we've talked about this but on the other hand we know it certainly in the United States, getting money for infrastructure is so hard to do. Right. Does it push money to projects that need to happen anyway? I mean, you need to rebuild a bridge, not very sexy. Oh, we need to rebuild the bridge because we're hosting the Olympics. All of a sudden, the money is there. Right. But then the backlash against how expensive it is, is really the backlash against maintaining your city. Because, yes, nobody wants to pay the taxes to have infrastructure until the bridge falls down and people die. So then there's that impetus to do it. And the Olympics is another impetus. So people rail about the expense of it. But how much is it we are creating much needed facilities or spurring much needed development? And we should explore probably what has gone on in London since 2012 because that was a huge urban renewal for that part of the city and I think Rio was also hoping for development I'm not convinced that's going to happen as quickly but I bet they thought it might happen yeah I mean I wonder how much you know which comes first the drive to get the Olympics or the drive for urban renewal and which is the horse and which is the cart. Mm -hmm. So I guess the, the test would be a city that had the Olympics and got the money for urban renewal that way versus a city that just invested in urban renewal separately. Okay. On its own. Right. Yeah. So social scientists out there, we have your PhD dissertation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Help us help you. Yeah. Help us. I'll be on the committee for that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. It's time for trivia. Allison, I'm first first this time. So we all know that the greatest swimmer ever is Mark Spitz. Why? I mean, he may not have won more medals than uh, Michael Phelps, but he did it with a big mustache. So... I think he's more amazing because of the drag that would have caused on him. Okay. So he was uh, famously known for the seven gold medals he won in Munich, 1972. But how many gold medals did he win in 1968? Three. He took home two. He predicted he would win six. He took home two from the relays. But his individual events, he was... Third in the 100-meter free, second in the 100-meter butterfly, and last in the finals of the 200 <sighs> butterfly. Yeah. So then he was driven for yes, 72. Yes, far yeah. driven. So he entered seven events, one gold in all seven, 
and set world records in every one of them. Okay. So for a second, I thought we almost had the same trivia question. Oh, okay. Because my trivia question does start out with, we all know Michael Phelps (laughs) is the most decorated (laughs) Olympian. Decorated, not necessarily the best. Just the most decorated. But, and then of course, he is thus the most decorated American male swimmer. Right. Do you know who the second most decorated American male swimmer is? American male. Well, now I feel like that's a trick question. It isn't. Oh, so it is Mark Spitz. No. No. Second most decorated American male swimmer? Yes. After Michael Phelps. Please don't tell me it's Ryan Lochte. It is Ryan Lochte. Oh, jeez. Are you serious? How many I'm medals serious. does he he's, he's got 12 medals. Three gold, three silver, and three bronze. And, you know, when Trevor was talking about the filtration system, mm-hmm. all I could think of was how Ryan Lochte admits he pees in the pool. And you really want that <laughs> filtration system working well. And I, I was going to ask you the most decorated American female swimmer, but I thought that this was too hard. Well, I that's did, I, either like, I don't know if that's Summer Sanders or... She's not even like the top 10. Really? Oh, but it's... um. What's her name from Seoul? Why can't no. I, no, it's not her. What is her name from Seoul? That's killing me because I should know that. Like, the uh, back of the hand. Uh, Janet Evans? Yes, Janet Evans. Not Janet Evans. It's is not it, Janet Evans. She's it, pretty it, far down the list. Is it an older person? No. It's a new person. Ish. Jenny Thompson. Oh, Jenny Thompson. Right. Far out. Didn't I mean, remember her. Uh, she's got 12 as well. She had oh, eight goals. Wow. Eight. And wow. Yeah. yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. Katie Ledecky's up ahead of Summer Sanders, oh, uh, really? Mary okay. T. Maher. Um, yeah. I mean, Summer's down the list, but she got the most commercials. So that's why we remember. <laughs> and she has a, like a very prolific, uh, announcing career. Because she's yes. on, she and she's know. very good. Yes, she's very good in her announcing career. So I shouldn't tease her about her commercials. I just remember her razor commercials, and I'm like, yeah, I am going to trust what razor the swimmers use. <laughs> and I mean that in all seriousness. Yeah, right? I'm like, yeah, cause she's shaving like three times a day. I'm, <laughs> I'm trusting her judgment on this one. Uh, okay, well, that is going to wrap it up for another episode of Olympic Fever. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you here back next week. Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M-Fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at Olympfever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. But some people just say, well, go ahead. We don't care.